Welcome, everyone, to the JPO Podcast. It is September 2020. I'm Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. My two co-hosts for today are Josh Holt from University of Iowa and Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital of Colorado. We're going to be joined by three authors, which we're really excited about. We'll start off in Sacramento, California with Dr. Cole Carney at the Shriners Hospital. We're going to discuss skiffies and a paper that tells us what we should be doing with those really skeletally immature patients. Then we'll go down to Dallas, Texas at TSRH for a conversation with Carl Rathjen about a really impressive study, in my opinion, on Sherman's kyphosis that gives us some good numbers, including some patient-reported outcomes, to support the surgical treatment of Sherman's and show some really positive benefits with surgery. Last, we'll stay in Texas. We'll go over to San Antonio for a conversation with Dr. Julian Nully about the use of NSAIDs in kids and some reassurance about the low risk of non-union and poor healing. Thanks for being with us. For the next segment of today's podcast, we are going to go to a study out of UC Davis and the Sacramento Shriners. The study is on prophylactic fixation of the contralateral hip in skiffy patients, and specifically the impact that has on the femoral head and the possibility of developing a deformity. In this study, the authors looked back at 55 skiffy patients. About two-thirds of those had a prophylactic fixation of the other side with a threaded screw. About one-third of those did not. The authors compared the groups and found that prophylactic fixation regularly leads to femoral head deformity, especially in skeletally immature patients. They used the modified Oxford score, which has been shown before, to accurately predict the risk of a contralateral slip in skiffy patients. And the most skeletally immature patients have a modified Oxford score of about 16 and 17, and these patients have previously been shown to have nearly 100% risk of contralateral slip. So this suggests that they need prophylactic fixation. This study, on the other hand, shows that these patients also have a very high risk of developing an aspherical femoral head after they undergo prophylactic fixation. So the authors conclude that patients with modified Oxford scores of 16 and 17, in other words, very skeletally immature patients, should undergo prophylactic fixation when they have a skiffy. But consideration should be given to growth-friendly implants rather than traditional threaded screws to minimize the risk of femoral head deformity. So moving on from there, I have the pleasure of welcoming lead author, uh, Dr. Vedant Kulkarni from UC Davis and the Sacramento Shriners. Dr. Kulkarni, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Dr. Clement. Pleasure to be here. And for my first question, just to get out of the way, do you or your co-authors have any uh, financial relationships with any producers of so-called growth-friendly skiffy implants? That's a fair question. No, we don't. Excellent. And next, the first thing that I thought reading this article is that modified Oxford score is a really impressive tool, but it can be a little complex. There's probably a little bit of a learning curve starting to use it and working it into your clinical practice. Is this something that you guys are using in clinical practice? Yeah, we actually are. One of the uh, studies that we quote here really established that the modified Oxford score is very useful to help stratify the risk of development of skiffy on the contralateral side when a unilateral skiffy presents. And the authors of that study also did the data analysis with just an open, a wide open triradial and found that that was predictive, but not quite as good as the modified Oxford score. What came out of our study here was that the modified Oxford score really helps stratify much better than any other 
single crisis at the at the pelvis help stratify those children who are at highest risk for developing proximal femoral deformity after threaded fixation. So um, this is a, a tool that we use. I agree with you. It's a little bit cumbersome because we're not that familiar with the changes in morphology that typically happen over time. But now having used this modified Oxford score for a few years, it's become uh, much easier for me to make the judgment. But I still, to be perfectly frank and honest, I, I still refer back to the little pictures that are available in some of the articles we quote to make sure that I'm making the correct judgment. Yeah, fair enough. There are a lot of factors in that score. And so in your hands, what patients are being treated right now with, with prophylactic contralateral fixation, um, how do you make that decision? And are you treating some of those with growth-friendly implants instead of just uh, basic screws? So we are using the modified Oxford score to help stratify who we offer prophylactic fixation to. And I should say it's a shared decision-making with the family because, as you know, prophylactic fixation is not without its risk. There have been published accounts of avascular necrosis, of infection, of chondrolysis, and now uh, proximal femoral deformity created iatrogenically in the most skeletally immature. So we use all of that information and have a shared decision-making with the family. And we offer it to those who have a modified Oxford score of 19 or less, so 16 to 19. These are the most skeletally immature patients. We worry the most about contralateral slipping occurring in those patients who are the most scalably immature, the modified Oxford score 16 or 17. And those are the patients where now we are considering seriously offering non-threaded fixation across the physis. And that's what I mean when I say, when we're saying growth friendly, is it's essentially non-threaded physeal fixation that allows for subsequent growth, but still creates some stability. And um, that can be something as simple as K-wires or a partially threaded screw that's left a little bit long to accommodate for subsequent growth. And then there are also telescopic implants that are available on the market um, that I don't have any personal experience with, but some of my partners have used, and at least in the short term, have been free of any major complications. Gotcha. Okay. That's, that's great. So modified Oxford score 16 or 17, think about some growth-friendly implants, 18 or 19, go ahead and prophylactically fix if the parents agree with a traditional threaded screw. That's right. I know you said you don't have any personal experience with those um, telescoping rods, but uh, I'm curious if you have any insights from your partners about any certain pearls or pitfalls or other things you've seen. Um, I'm mostly asking out of my own uh, interest because I also don't have any experience with those or, or these other uh, sort of simpler forms of growth-friendly implants you mentioned. Yeah, and I think that that really speaks to how rare these patients are in most of our practices. We only gathered about 55 of these youngest patients over the course of many years of looking at our records. And so we may not always have personal experience with these, with these implants unless we're using them regularly for our um, skiffies. So um, what I have learned from um, my partners is that the partially threaded screws do work. They have, to be let, they have to be kept a little bit longer, not so long that they're symptomatic. And that's kind of where some of the challenges are is that you have to thread the needle between being right. too long and being symptomatic and being too short and then just needing to be replaced. You have to pay a lot of attention to detail in terms of your placement of these telescoping implants because they're only telescoping along a single axis. And so it has to be... Mm completely perpendicular to the physis on all views. So in a, in a prophylactic situation, that's relatively straightforward. But those implants have been designed for skiffy sides too. I think in those situations, um, it would be even more challenging to, to get completely perpendicular depending on the degree of deformity. Yeah, absolutely. 
to give the listeners a little bit better idea of uh, sort of the practice environment where, where these thoughts were developed, could you tell us a little bit more about skiffy management at your institution? Is everyone getting pinned in situ? Um, multiple pins for unstable slips. Does modified done have a role in skiffy? Yeah, we have um, fixed in situ with threaded fixation for uh, stable and unstable skiffies. Stable skiffies are pretty straightforward. I think the, the management is pretty standardized across most institutions in North America. For unstable skiffies, most of our partners will do in situ fixation without a dedicated attempt at a reduction. We are not routinely doing modified done acutely to reduce very severe skiffy. Although we, I do have partners who are very confident and familiar with that technique. And in a, a reconstructive setting, we, we follow these patients very closely and if they do develop impingement or pain, then we offer them the appropriate dose of surgery. So if it's a, if it's a less severe slip, they get arthroscopic surgery. If it's a more severe slip um, that can be managed without osteotomy, it might get a, uh, might get a uh, surgical hip dislocation, osteochondroplasty. And the most severe cases might require an osteotomy. Got it. Great. Sounds familiar. And this is obviously an area with a lot of a lot of question marks. What do you see as sort of the next steps, either from your institution or in the profession for this area of investigation? In doing this study, I think all of us appreciated how much growth potential is possible at the proximal femur. And there have been studies about modifying the, um, the morphology of the proximal femur in conditions like DDH and neuromuscular hip dysplasia using fixation across the physis. I think something really exciting would be a really standardized prospective study that looked at in situ fixation with growth-friendly instruments on the skiffy side to see if you could design a fixation strategy that both protected the hip from further deformity, but also allowed for subsequent remodeling that was meaningful and perhaps prevented a, a larger surgery down the road. Um, on, a, on a more uh, basic level, this study helped us appreciate how important skeletal maturity is to, to subsequent growth. And any studies that look at Skiffy, it would be wonderful if the designers of those studies would include other areas to look to, to make the skeletal maturity assessment, such as hand x-rays for, uh, for example, Sanders score or bone age, hand bone age, um, and also foot x-rays for calcaneal apophysis scoring, because both of those um, seem to have a very promising role and may make the determination of skeletal maturity easier than the modified Oxford score or perhaps supplement it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. My final question for you is what is your favorite surgery? Oh, my favorite surgery. Oh, that's a great question. One that works. <laughs> <laughs> that's about it. Fair enough. Thank you again, uh, everyone. This is Vedan Kokarni at UC Davis and the Sacramento Shriners. And I uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. With that, I'll hand things over to Josh for some new information on Sherman's kyphosis. This is Josh Holt here, broadcasting from the Stead Family Children's Hospital in beautiful Iowa City, where we are all very excited for the Big Ten to get back to playing some football this fall and looking forward to seeing the Hawkeyes back on the field. We have a really great article to discuss on today's program and are fortunate to have the senior author, Dr. Carl Rathjen, join us later in the program. Today, we will discuss the article out of Texas Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas, Texas, entitled Prospective Comparison of Patient-Selected Operative versus Non-Operative Treatment of Schuerman Kyphosis. In this study, the authors compare the two-year radiographic and patient-reported health-related quality of life outcomes of those who elected to proceed with surgical correction of their kyphotic deformity with those patients who elected for non-operative treatment. 
the authors prospectively collected SRS 22 questionnaire data on 45 patients, 27 operative and 18 non-operative, who were managed at a single institution for Schuerman kyphosis. Of note, the non-operative cohort of patients were about two years younger than the surgical patients at the time of the study. Results of their study are not surprising. However, they do provide some interesting data that can be used in counsel with patients and should prompt further evaluation into the treatment of Schuerman kyphosis. The authors found that patients who elected to proceed with surgery had larger initial Cobb angles than those electing non-operative treatment. Patients electing surgical care had lower SRS-22 scores in both the pain and appearance domains, indicating more pain and poorer appearance. Two years postoperatively, surgical patients had smaller Cobb angles, as expected, but also had significantly improved SRS-22 scores in both pain and appearance. Also of importance, the non-operative cohort did not show significant decline in their pain or appearance scores on the SRS-22 questionnaires. So, in conclusion, the authors state that operatively treated patients with Schuerman kyphosis have significantly improved SRS scores in both pain and appearance, in addition to their improved Cobb angles, but that non-operative patients did not deteriorate over time. So it's now a great honor to welcome to the program Dr. Carl Ratchin from Dallas and the Texas Scottish Rite Hospital. Dr. Ratchin, welcome to the program. Thanks, Josh. It's really a pleasure to have you on here, and we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Well, I, I appreciate being invited and the time you take to edit it and put this together for all of our colleagues. It's a, it's a great use of technology, and it's fun to see uh, POSNA and JPO uh, taking advantage of all of our current ways to communicate. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's been a lot of fun to get to meet people like yourself and some of the other thought leaders in the field, so we appreciate it. And I, a few questions I had, and we can kind of branch out on any other topics you have in mind, but... One thing that I definitely wanted to touch on was the significant improvements in SRS-22 scores in both pain and appearance. My mentor, Dr. Weinstein, and now senior partner, has repeatedly emphasized that patients with Schumann kyphosis are typically his happiest patients postoperatively. They really gain a new outlook on life and gain a lot of confidence and respect for themselves that they may not have had previously. But is this enough for surgery? Would you use this as indication for operative treatment in these patients? A couple of things. First of all, uh, that's that's equally true in Dallas, Texas, as well. Um, I re, I tell the, the trainees that these are these are cookie patients um, that they bring you cookies every time they come back to see you because they're so happy. Um, and it's ironic to me that Stu Weinstein would point that out because I think the, the hallmark University of Iowa study on Sherman's I think is one of the the greatest arguments for non-operative and conservative treatment uh, that the patients really over decades do essentially the same as peers with, with non-operative treatment. Uh, so I think it's it's interesting that they do get operated on at the University of Iowa and that Stu recognizes that, that they're very happy for it. To me, this article puts some data, if you will, with the SRS-22 scores into or around what we would always kind of assume, which is if you have a bigger curve, uh, you're more likely to choose surgery. Uh, if you have a bigger curve, you're probably going to be bothered by the appearance uh, and it may hurt a little bit more. Um, I think one of the unanswered answered questions from this study is what is the relationship between how you feel about your back and how your back feels? Are patients that have more pain, do they differ in their emotional health resiliency? Yeah, yeah, good points. And one of the things you guys did address is that their pain score
wars at least were normalized and that's something that you know we talk a lot about at least for me with AIS that it's oftentimes not painful and if patients have a little nagging pain it's hard for me to give them a ton of confidence in the world that those nagging pains are going to be resolved with surgery do you think that your objective data that you've got in this study is enough that you can now tell patients that that yeah this surgery it does a good job to get rid of your pain or is that still something we need to prove with with more data well, back pain is such a part of the human existence, um, and I think surgery is really all about expectations. And so I'm very, still very, very cautious to tell Sherman's patients or AIS patients, um, because I think there is some evolving data that actually patients with AIS and more pain will have some improvement in their pain with surgery. Um, but I'm very, very cautious to, to kind of tell patients that. In fact, what I tell them is that I, I think they're likely to have back pain after surgery uh, because most humans do. If they come back and they say that their back feels better, I, I'm happy to take all the credit. But if they come back and say that their back still hurts, I'm going to say, well, I told you to expect that your yeah. back would, you still have some occasional back pain. I think for for patients who who have realistic expectations and you know kind of low to levels to moderate pain, I think this data would would suggest that you can tell them that it should be a little bit better. And certainly, uh, the data says you're going to feel better about how your back looks. And and again, that goes to and I ask my patients all that time: is that if you feel if you feel better about your back, does your back feel better? Yeah, 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 good point. And I mean, I think a lot of the stuff that you guys showed in the study are are things, you know, we were just talking about it off air that, that probably a lot of people think and maybe even mention to patients, but it's good to have some data and start to build some repository that, that we have some objective findings to support those things. And, and on that front, why is it that you think that these Schuerman's patients have lower scores from the start than AAS patients and, and show good improvement with the surgery? Is it actually their back or is it something else is it the patient cohort is it their body habitus that's oftentimes very different than AAS patients you know why do you think it is that they have a lower score on many of their patient reported outcomes and image and pain than AIS patients well, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, uh, you know, it is these these are probably sixty forty male female, so you're more likely to be male. And it, and they had they generally, uh, you know, the the middle of the bell shaped curve stereotypically have a, a very different body habitus than the typical AIS patient. Um, and I think I think the, the deformity uh, is more recognizable in these patients. Um, and as and as you mentioned, Dr. Dr. Weinstein pointed out is that spine deformity affects the the self confidence uh, of so many of these patients. Again, that's an- anecdotal. We don't have the data in this study, um, but I think that again, coming back to the the next um, you know the next thing would be longitudinally to collect a little bit more emotional health uh, information and data on these patients to really understand uh, what is their self-confidence and where are they in their resiliency factors. We may never be able to tease out what is your body habitus and your physical appearance. How does that affect those uh, emotional health factors? Yeah, and that, that leads in exactly my next question to you is, you know, another thing Dr. Weinstein comments on that I've seen in my early practice is sometimes the location of the kyphosis can be a big difference. If it's an upper thoracic kyphosis, that's just a kind of accentuation of a normal place that should have some kyphosis compared to more of the lower thoracic kind of thoracolumbar kyphosis, 
those patients, it's, it's more of an abnormal place to have a kyphosis and they may be more self-aware of that and have a kind of lower just scores because of that. Is that something you guys tried to look at or something that you've noticed yourself? was not something that was addressed or looked at with the data in this study. Um, and certainly, I, I think that the, the patients with a thoracal lumbar or lumbar Sherman's, I don't know that, uh, that clinically that I could say that I expect them to do worse. I think that intuitively, if you're kyphotic in a place of the spine that should be straight, um, I think we all worry about that long term. What is that patient, is, is that patient going to do as well at you know, 50 as the patient who had a higher, uh, you know, as you said, more uh, more proximal um, thoracic kyphosis. Um, and, and I think uh, certainly at least amongst the spine surgeons at our institution, we probably would tend to be a little bit more aggressive surgically in those, uh, in those with the the apex is at a lower level. Sure. And this, this question may not have an answer, but I've always been curious to know other people's thoughts is, is there a number that would be a reasonable indication for surgery? So a patient comes in with a kyphosis of X who has failed non-operative stuff, failed physical therapy, still having pain, still having, you know, significant psychosocial concerns because of their curve. Is there a threshold that you guys use or have seen? I, I know you may not have a, a discrete answer, but what are your thoughts on that? Not really. Um, I, I tell I tell patients and their parents that I think there's this is you know Sherman's to me comes in, in kind of three levels and then the ones that come in and you look at their X-ray and you look at their back and and you you want to do the operation you know they they need it um, and then and then there's ones that come in and it's so mild it's really a, almost a normal variant and you wouldn't you wouldn't think about operating into those and then there's one in the middle that that it's you know it's there but it's but it's probably livable with um and i don't i don't have radiographic parameters to put on that because i think some of it has to do with their body habitus and how they carry their curve yeah yeah and that's it's one of those struggles that i'm certainly dealing with just three years into practice and trying to figure out some of that some of that minutia of spine surgery and then i guess my last question for you is you know, the age difference between the two groups, the non-op group and the operative group was two years. And your study follow-up was a couple years follow-up where the older patients were more likely to have surgery and the younger patients not. Do you think that, um, you know, repeating this study two years later, do you have a suspicion that those earlier, younger, non-operative patients would then become the operative cohort two years later who are having more pain, who are having bigger curves and are now wanting surgery two years later? Or do you think that this is probably two different cohorts? I think it's probably two different co- cohorts. I'm not certain that the younger patients are, are going to progress and have um, end up being treated surgically, although it's certainly possible, and it's a it's a good point to to bring these patients back and, and look at them again, and maybe address some of the look at some of the emotional health things that we've discussed a little bit too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly the next step is is kind of some of that longitudinal emotional health resiliency that you mentioned before. Actually, while I have you on the line, I do have one other question. So your reoperations um, probably higher than we would see in an AIS population. Hey, what are your thoughts on the the reoperation rates that you guys had, and some of the reports in the literature? Any anything we can do to lower those rates, or that you guys have tried to do to change what you do perioperatively to help with that? Right, and I, I think the the reoperations. Uh, 
generally in our in our cohort and in general fall into uh, soft tissue infections. And we've we've talked about the body body habits of these patients. Many of them will have a B, BMI that puts them in obese or greater category. Um, and we now any anybody with a BMI over 30 having a posterior spine fusion, we we will treat as if they are a neuromuscular spine. So, um, and some of us will use uh, antibiotics and stimulon or antibiotics in the bone graft. Um, and maybe a prolonged drain and closure with non-absorbable uh, either stitches or staples, um, perhaps even an incisional wound back um, uh, for a period of time just to really really be extra diligent uh, with the soft tissues uh, and everything we can to decrease the, the risk of infection. Um, and then I think you, these patients have uh, uh, distal and proximal junctional kyphotic issues. And, uh, and so I think it's really important what we've learned is that our implants and our ability to correct has uh, has really uh, improved dramatically, and and you can't overcorrect these patients, and and some of them just kind of want to be forward and be a little kyphotic, and so um, you probably don't need anybody, you know, taking down below, you know, 45, and it may be fine to leave at 50 or 55, and uh, so what you want to do is improve them, uh, but don't normalize them. Yeah, it's really good insight. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. It's always nice to have uh, someone with experience and a lot of thought going into these things, and again, a study that I think a lot of us probably believe and have thought, but so good to have some data and some patient-reported outcomes to be able to share with patients and help guide shared decision-making with them. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Josh. I'm thrilled to be included and appreciate you, your efforts in, on, for, on behalf of all of us. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Dr. Rathjen. And next, I'll hand it over to Julia, our designated trauma specialist of the podcast, for some information on NSAIDs and fracture healing. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, from Children's Hospital Colorado. And I'm here today with Dr. Julia Nulli, who is now at the San Antonio Military Medical Center in Texas, who's here to discuss her paper entitled, Effect of NSAID Use on Bone Healing in Pediatric Fractures, a Preliminary Prospective Randomized Blinded Study which was performed at the University of Missouri. Dr. Nolley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start off by just talking some general terms. Um, NSAID use has been one of the more controversial and variable issues in orthopedic surgery for many years. So could you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to tackle this question? Certainly. well, my interest in this kind of started way many years ago, back when I was a medical student, and I was doing some work with uh, Dr. Terry Capello at Loyola and uh, in Chicago, and we were looking at the effect of inside use on juvenile rats and uh, in a fracture model that um, that we designed up there, and we found that there wasn't any effect on high even higher doses of insects in that. Uh, uh, that model. And so after I left Loyola, moved on to University of Missouri, I uh, talked with some of the pediatric orthopedic surgeons there, Dr. Hornschmeyer and Dr. Gupta, and uh, thought, can we translate this to a clinical study um, using that preliminary kind of animal data? And they were on board with it. Um, you know, I think in clinical practice, a lot of pediatric orthopedic surgeons uh, are find that they don't have any issues giving insects to kids, but we don't have a lot of literature out there to support that. In fact, we have some literature out there in the, on the adult side of things that suggests that this could be problematic from, for fracture healing. And so um, that's what you know, led me to down that path to look into this a little bit more. Because um, as we know, kids are not little adults. And so we can't translate all of the adult literature to pediatrics. 
Perfect. I agree with everything you said. I think this is a tough question that pediatric folks deal with when we don't have an answer. So this is really great. And um, clearly study design is so important in attempting to answer these kinds of questions. Um, so how did you set up this project in order to get meaningful results? Yeah, so that because there wasn't a lot of uh, data out there in the peds uh, literature about this, trying to do a meaningful power analysis was something that we really wanted to focus on and, and we found a bit challenging because we didn't have good data to say, okay, this is a typical non-union rate uh, for pediatric patients because they generally heal quite well. Um, so what we did was looked at uh, the uh, documented non-union rates in the in inset studies and when kind of people were using uh, to do that. And uh, that's how we did our power analysis uh, to determine if we had about 40 subjects in each group, that would be sufficient. And um, so we bumped that up to account for um, dropout and things like that to about 50 patients in each group. And, and so that's what we started with, trying to get enough numbers to say, is there a difference or is there not a difference between these two groups? And so um, the two groups that we had, our control group, the kids got Tylenol as their main pain control uh, method. And they had oxycodone available for breakthrough pain if they needed. And then our study group had ibuprofen, uh, also had oxycodone available for breakthrough pain if needed. And then uh, the, uh, they all, the study group also had um, Toradol available uh, if they were inpatient. Of course, they didn't get that if they were seen in the emergency room or do since at home. Um, so there's only a handful of folks that actually got Toradol. Okay. And these were all long bone fractures, correct? So you just included yes. those? Yeah. Okay. So for all long bone fractures, uh, we didn't include buckle fractures. We didn't include type one supercondylars, things that um, generally have a very, very high propensity to heal. We didn't include those. Um, but any um, sort of long bone fracture, if it required a reduction or went to the OR. Well, and I think, you know, the most important and, and interesting part of this is, is your findings regarding healing, pain scores, and I think narcotic use as well, because there's some real implications there. So can you describe a little bit of your findings on, on those three topics? Yeah, certainly. So um, well, generally, overall, what we found there wasn't a big difference between the two groups um, for healing time. So I think that was our, our main focus. Um, the There was some kind of num numerical differences, but nothing that came out to be statistically significantly different between the two groups. And I think that's what we're all really focused on. Um, and so that shows us that, okay, we can use NSAIDs for this patient population and not impair their fracture healing. Um, when regards to uh, pain control, pain scores, narcotic use, all of those things, again, statistically similar between the two groups. Um, at all the time points that we looked at, the kind of right after the first three days, right after injury or surgery, and then even bumping it out to one to two weeks, six weeks, looking at 10 to 12 weeks and looking at six months. Um, no big differences between those two groups. Uh, when, we, when we looked at narcotic use, um, the breakthrough oxycodone was used for 2.4 days in the control group and 1.9 in the inside group. That again, wasn't statistically significantly different but when you're talking about a day-ish or a day and a half or excuse me, a day or a half a day for a pediatric patient getting narcotics, I think that is meaningful to me from a clinical standpoint um, because of the side effects that those medications can have on these on little folks. So um, anything that can reduce that, I think, is clinically meaningful to me in my practice. 
Absolutely. So then that, of course, begs the question, has this changed your practice or, you know, will this change your practice? And then, you know, do you think this is strong enough evidence to change people's practices around the world that still are worried about this? Yeah. So I think for my, my practice, I'm very comfortable in giving insights to kids. So I didn't, um, cause I, my, I saw my mentors doing the same thing through my training when they were taking care of pediatric patients. Um, and so my practice didn't change a lot because of this, but it just reinforced that it's okay to, to give uh, kids these kind of medications and we're not going to, uh, impair their fracture healing. I think that kind of more, uh, folks who don't take care of pediatric patients as often who may have some reservations about it, this can give them some evidence to say it's, this is probably going to be okay. Um, I will say we, this is kind of a preliminary, we included it in the title, this is a preliminary study. And so it's something that we're hoping we can build upon and gather more data to, to do a multi-center study to really get that even stronger evidence to show this is safe and effective in kids who have uh, acute fractures. Um, and I think that that is still be to be determined. Um, so I don't think we can just dramatically change everyone's practice and there'll be some folks that will still have some reservations about it. And that's understandable um, because I don't think no matter any, whatever study we have, there's nothing that's, you know, end all be all the absolute final answer. But I think if we um, kind of replicate this study on a, on a larger scale, um, we could have some more robust results. Um, and then we could use, uh, we're hoping to use this study as a foundation to get even a, a more powerful power analysis, so to speak, um, uh, to, to inform that next step. Absolutely. I think that's great. And I think one of the really interesting questions would be, you know, if there is a difference in adults, if, if adults do respond differently, then, you know, when does that, that line click? Um, so that could be really, really interesting and, and very informative for sure for, for all those folks out there who take care of both kids and adults so they can really um, make a decision for the best practice for their child. So. Exactly right. Yeah. And I think too, it, it will help potentially help us or at least open more questions to us of why, what can we, is there anything that we can learn from the pediatric skeleton and how it functions that we can then somehow apply or um, develop uh, interventions that we can use in adults who have non-unions and, um, and fractures that are difficult to heal. So that's, way beyond. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a next level question, but that's, yeah. that's exactly right. What's magical about the pediatric bones that they, that they can heal pretty much no matter what. So, right. well, great. Thank you so much. I think this is a really valuable um, thing for everybody to have, especially, as I said, those folks that are taking care of the, the wide variety of patients from, from both ends of the life spectrum. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your findings with us. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you, Julia and Julia. I am personally delighted to know that I can keep giving NSAIDs guilt-free. Thank you to everyone for listening. And if you have not yet checked out our other POSNA podcast, Interview with a PD Pod, we hope you'll look it up. It's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc. And we'll see you next month. Mm-hmm.